And before we get going, here's a word about our sponsors. SDHQ Motorsport is a powerhouse 30,000 square foot facility with 45 family members reporting for duty. This single owner, single location business is based out of Gilbert, Arizona. It can handle anything from a hot rod, daily driver, pre-runner, race vehicle, half-track or Kubelwagen, or just about any other project you need help with. Their skilled staff with hundreds of years of combined experience eats, sleeps and breathes performance. So go check them out at sdhqmotorsports.com or check them out on Insta at sdhqmotorsports. Well, hello and welcome back to the second season of the We Happy Few 506 podcast, The Nearly Men and... There's nearly a full complement of people here today. Uh, there wasn't yesterday, but we'll get into that in a little while. Um, lots has gone on since we took our little sabbatical, our hiatus, if you like, which we'll talk about a bit later on. Uh, you'll notice that there's actually some commercials on this podcast. There's sponsors now. Um, we appear to have this sort of corporate parameter that we need to behave ourselves within which I'm totally not going to do, but thanks for your sponsorship. Uh, no, beautiful people, thank you so much for sponsoring us. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, and we will endeavour to bring you some quality content. So that said, unfortunately, we now have Joe Muccia talking. Um, <laughs> welcome back, Mooch. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, pal. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, this is going to be the second part of the uh, Moocha Palooza, uh, where we talk Band of Brothers through the episodes, do a bit of myth busting, talk about the history. Um, and we ended with the end of episode one um, last time, and we were just having a quick conversation offline. Uh, apparently, we did talk about this, but I'd like to recap anyway, maybe drill a bit deeper into it. So, I think the first question I'd like to ask you about, Mooch, um, is Bill Garnier. Um, right before the jump, jump's cancelled. No jump tonight. Everyone goes to the cinema. Bill's got the wrong jacket on. Digs in his pocket. He's got Johnny Martin's jacket on. He finds a letter that's written by Johnny Martin's wife uh, that says that uh, Bill Gunnier's brother's been killed in Monte Cassino. Um, is that exactly accurate? Is that dramatic license? How did it happen? Um, no, it... it, it, it... Uh, as you stated, it pretty much happened the way it was written by the writers in that um, the, the guys had gathered up. Um, and like you said, they, they got word that the jump had been canceled. The weather was terrible that night. Um, basically, uh, Eisenhower uh, called down to his subordinate commanders and said, hey, we're going to push this back at least 24 hours. We're going to wait and see if the weather will clear up. Um, and then it's semi faithfully covered in the longest day in terms of cin cinematic cinematically covered um but yeah bill goes to um he goes to go to the latrine um he walks basically through the barracks and he oh, not barracks they're in tents at the time walks through the tent picks up a jacket which he thinks is his because he and johnny are both sergeants so they both have sharp sergeant chevrons on their jackets so he grabs the nearest one that has sergeant chevrons on it puts it on goes to the latrine first thing he does is He's like, wow, there's something in the pocket besides my cigarettes. I didn't know um, what it was. And he puts his hand in the pocket and it's a letter. And figuring, I've got time to burn here. I might as well just read. Because it was common for the guys to uh, read either their letters to each other or read each other's mail. In some cases, some of the guys weren't exceptionally literate. So guys would read them to, or, or they wouldn't get a lot of mail if they didn't have a lot of family. So guys would read letters back and forth. It was just a way to 
bond and keep everybody connected. And um, so Bill reached into the pocket, pulled out the letter, figuring it was Johnny's wife just updating him on the on the goings on back home, you know. And he starts reading it, and he and he finds out his brother Henry has has been killed uh, in Italy. Um, you know, and as Bill has said had said in the past repeatedly, um, when they set me loose in in Normandy, they set a madman loose. I mean, he really um, did a affected. lot of killing that night. Did a lot yeah. of killing. He 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 loved Henry. Henry was, uh, uh, I think, he even used the word "idol of mine." The words "idol of mine." Uh, in our conversations a few times. And I, I think they tried to, we talked about it, they tried to intimate it in the dialogue, uh -huh. the way the way Frank delivers the line that, about his mom um, taking it very hard. Um, so I, th I think they did a beautiful job in writing that. But yeah, the accuracy was definitely there for that, for that sequence. Yeah, I think when you know this and then you watch that scene again and Frank's such a clever and complex actor, I think what he's trying to say is, I'm broken up, but I can't say it. So what he says is, it hit my mum hardest. She was his favorite, you know. He was yeah, I think favorite, he, but he I, a... I actually think what he's saying is, it's broken my heart. He just he just can't say it. And and he he delivers it with the phys his physical, his face. Mm. You can see, he's he's almost contorted. It was a really yeah. beautiful piece of acting. It's beautiful, and it's and it's so ambiguous and and clever and um, yeah. He's such a great actor. I was talking to you offline, actually. I'm going slightly off message here, but uh, he, Jimmy Maddio and Ron Livingston, um, have made this film together called The Featherweight, which is about, a, I believe, a, a featherweight boxer called Joseph Pep. And Jimmy's heavily involved in the writing and all the rest of it. I'm very excited to see that as well. That's going to be fantastic. It's yeah. currently opening at the Venice Film Festival. So anybody in the Venice Film Festival, get yourself down there. It's going to be fantastic. I have to say as well, sorry, I was... I was trying not to smirk during what you were saying because it reminded me of something. <laughs> um, it's a great British comedian called Spike Milligan, who was in the artillery, I believe. During yes, he was. He was, yeah. Oh, so you know about Spike Milligan. Uh, Hitler, my partner's downfall and all that stuff. And there's, yeah. the, there's the stuff with the guy. Is it Plunger, whatever his name is? I can't remember what the guy's called, but he can't read or write. And they're writing letters to his wife. It's the <laughs> funniest stuff that they're saying. When do I sprinkle the lime over the shit? And all this bit is so, so funny. It's just typical, like what we call squaddy, squaddy humor. It's so funny. Yeah, there's a similar sequence in uh, um, Jarhead. Right. Okay. I've not Jake seen Jake Hall goes to go buy alcohol and it's, uh, what's his name? Krasinski. They get, get from the office. Oh, yeah. yeah Robert. And he goes to buy it and he's like, I'm, I'm a classically trained writer and he's got me writing letters the officer's got him writing letters to his wife and he's writing all kinds of dirty stuff it's, it's pretty funny <laughs> brilliant it's the, yeah the stuff in the spike milligan place is just hilarious by the um, way if, yeah to, to foot stomp that if any of your uh listeners watchers um are interested spike milligan's wartime stuff is is pretty outstanding yeah it's it's beautiful isn't it yeah, that's yeah. multi-layered as well some of it's really deep some of it's just absolutely hilarious a lot yeah. of it's incredibly inappropriate now not sure it was going to survive the current climate <laughs> um but brilliant and very um very historically accurate obviously it was there so it's kind of a stupid thing to say but he's he's clearly documented it very well and remembered it very well and researched it and gone back over it very well as well yeah check it out especially it's called hitler my partner's downfall i think is my yeah. My favorite. Anyway, let's get back onto what we were talking about. Yeah, back on message. <laughs> we're back on message. Um, 
so C-47s head out, scattered all over the Cotentin Peninsula and everything. Let's stick with Bill. Where does Bill land? As so, that's was we're following episode two. So, so you know, that's a, it's an interesting question because half the time these guys didn't know exactly where they landed. There right. Very few of them had, had their, their wits about them other than the fact that they needed to find a landmark of some sort. But Bill landed on the southern, um, southeastern uh, fringes of St. Mariglis. So, and he was one of many, um, I, I always tease my, my friends who are in the 82nd, who they, the, oh, the St. Saint, Saint Glees is an 82nd town. Well, yeah, it definitely is. There was a lot of fighting around St. Glees and the 82nd was responsible for that part of the battlefield. But the 101st Airborne, specifically elements of the 506, actually dropped about a half an hour prior to the 82nd getting over St. Glees. So there's actually the first paratroopers that are killed in the square at St. Glees are from Dog Company of the 506th. I did not know that. Uh, yeah, including Walter Gunther, who was a, um, uh, I believe he was the company executive officer at the time for Dog Company. Um, another fellow by the name of Linus Brown, he, uh, right where the water pump is, out in front of the church, off to the right when you're looking at, he he lands right in that area and he ends up finding his way out. But Bill lands somewhere between where the C-47 Cafe is now mm-hmm. and where the opening of the... Um, museum is wow he was somewhere in that stretch okay um so he, he lands there and he immediately moves south out of the city he doesn't want to be in or the town it's a town it's not a city he moves out of the town because he doesn't want to be in the town because the germans have strong point of the town um and once he does that he heads east out of the city um We'll go with winters a little bit because. Well, that's my of... next um, follow up question is like, how do, how long is it taking to find winters? Where's winters? So, yeah, so lead on, McDuff. Okay, so, on. so winters lands, um, the current day, there's a, a, a road overpass uh, east, uh, west of the city, I'm sorry, um, where there's a Y intersection. So, winters lands over in that area near in an apple orchard um, just west and northwest of the, where it's currently an overpass. Um, his leg bag <laughs> lands on the opposite side of the road. Uh, the where the Y intersection is was actually an anti-aircraft battery. So the one they depict in the miniseries was positioned at that intersection. And at first he goes to, and they also had a machine gun p- protecting um, the battery uh, that would was pointed down the road towards where Winter was at. Winters was at. So when he goes to move towards where his leg bag is, the machine gun starts firing. Now, in the miniseries they show, it's a forested area where all this takes place. And it was probably quite overgrown and not as many roadways, um, obviously not as many roadways back then. But once the fire starts, he he moves away from where his leg bag is. Now, the other thing that's not really correct is they show him linking up with a guy by the name of John D. Hall, or John Hall. That was not, there were there's a mistaken identity piece here. So winners actually landed near the A company supply sergeant. Um, John Hall was jumped on one of the sticks with C company 506. His stick went down and he was killed in with the stick. The whole plane went down. John D. Halls was a member of the 81 millimeter mortar platoon of the second battalion of 506. They later link up with Halls uh, down outside of Breakor. So 
he doesn't meet a hall or a halls up there. So there's a little bit of myth busting that goes on. It's an, it's the A Company Supply Sergeant. But the two of them link up and they actually move northeast of the city up towards the D15 roadway, which, which is now the D15 roadway, right? Um, as they're doing that, the other members of EZ Company are moving, some of them are moving out of the city on almost like a parallel track. And they'll end up intersecting um, northeast of the city um, and then start their movement south towards the where the causeways are. Um, Winters, the first person Winters links up from Easy Company is Lipton. And they right. depict this in the miniseries. And Lipton has a couple 82nd troopers with him. Lip had actually landed near where the um, current mayor's office is, uh, which is along the uh, N13 coming through the city south to north or north to south, depending on which way you approach. He actually goes up the N13 towards the out, leaving the leaving the town, and he finds the town's uh, marker, you know, road sign that says, hey, St. Mayor Gleese. And then he's like, okay, I know where that is on my map from the sand table exercises that we did when we were in the, in the, um, up at a pottery when they were, you know, sealed in for the, the invasion. So he remembers it. It's like the back of his hand too, because they went on so many times. So he comes back into town and then they, they, they all link up together. Winters, the A Company supply sergeant, Lipton and a couple of 82nd guys. And then they begin that movement Northeast. Winters and crew end up linking up with a, um, a column from uh, the 3rd Battalion of the 502nd because the 506 has now landed in an area that really wasn't where their drop zone is. Their drop zone was more towards Saint-Marie-du-Mont where uh, drop zone C is. They've landed up near A all the way up north in the northern portion of, of, of the battle space for the 101st Airborne. So Cole, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Cole, who ends up being a uh, nominated for and and awarded a medal of honor which he never gets to wear because he's killed in holland he's bringing his column down because he has to seal um he has to maintain causeways four and three so when you look at the coastline going down the causeways go four three two one easy is responsible for holding two open and first battalion the 506 has causeway number one and the 502nd has three and three and four so as you move down the coastline road, he's moving now in column. It's a, it's a fairly long column, and it's a mixed bag troopers. You've got guys from the 502nd and the guys from the 506th. There's a few artillerymen uh, from the 377th mixed in as well. And all these guys are moving. Um, and then they get to a T intersection uh, where they make they have to make a right to keep paralleling the coastline. And that's where we have the that wagon ambush that takes place. Mm -hmm. if i'm jumping forward in your narrative i'll let you No, yeah i mean actually you're following the uh the script almost to the letter <laughs> uh and this is where bill garnier jumps out yeah uh, you know in the miniseries yes this is where wild the wild bill legend is is fully formed at this point but it yes. doesn't really happen like that in in real life first of all there's no overpass and there's no rail line in that area um it makes for great drama as you build up in this and obviously for the way the scene is shot it's beautifully lit and shot um sonically it's a little off there's a couple of gunshots that don't go off right but uh, the perfection is, is to me sees that but what happens is the the coal column and now which includes malarkey joe toy uh, popeye win 
they start to make this right turn and about half the column gets around the turn when a column of German wagons, resupply wagons comes down the Northern leg of the T intersection. And at that point, uh, the firing begins, but it's not like this this cavalcade of fire that you or this cascade of fire that you see in the miniseries. It's more like a, a very few, uh, very well aimed shots takes out the first couple of Germans, and then they they seize the rest of the Germans and the wagons, and essentially just continue this this route of march heading towards the causeways. But I think for poetic licensing work that would fit well to have Bill's moment there. But right. really, his moment takes place after that. So what happens is with the prisoners, he's able to seize a couple of pistols, a couple of German pistols. So now he's armed, by the way, because he lost everything in the jump. He had a couple of hand grenades left. That was it. So he has now a couple of pistols on him. They begin moving down the roadway and the Germans are talking amongst themselves. And they don't know that there's a couple of German speaking paratroopers in the column. And they're basically telling the rest of the guys, hey, these Germans are talking and they're saying the next time we get fired upon, they're either going to try and jump a few of us or they're going to take off. So Bill starts seething at this. Right. I mean, he wants to he wants to kill them right there. So as they go down the road a little bit further, another hundred yards or so, they've taken under fire by a German machine gun. And the Germans jump in the trench. Everybody jumps into the roadside trenches, these these culverts. And Bill just opens fire with both pistols at point blank range and kills and like two or three of the Germans right there next to him until the, the pistols lock the slides lock to the rear. He's he's emptied both magazines. And literally that's where the, the wild Bill um legend really starts to form. Um wow. they how, keep moving down. How do you how do uh how did anybody come by this information? Was this from interviews with other guys or did Bill tell the story? Or... Uh, it took a long time for me to, to get Bill to tell me the, the story. You know, he, we talked a lot and it would be, yeah, kid, I just don't want to let anybody down was the way he would explain it to me. He's like, they did a great job with it. And I really liked the way it was it was done. He's like, I didn't want to let anybody down with the story. I'm like, well, Bill, that's a heck of a story as it is. He goes, eh, you know. You know how he was. He would he would get like non-committal about the about the stuff. But it took a number of years. I mean, not I would say by then we were friends. Right. Like I don't think he would tell it to somebody in passing. It took a long time to build up a level of trust where we would talk about it. But uh, you know, along the way, as depicted in the miniseries, they they find a, a a bunch of dead troopers and they pick up weapons, and that's when he acquires his Tommy gun, which uh -huh. he'll he'll use basically for the rest of the war. Yeah, um, just backtracking a little bit. That scene with the overpass and the German, mm -hmm. they come through. I might be wrong here, but this is one for the purists. I swear there's a scene in The Longest Day that looks exactly the same. <laughs> and it's the scene where the German troopers walk by and they miss one another. And that guy's yeah. like, Lord, love a duck or something. He says something like really cockney, doesn't he? Yeah. It looks exactly the same as that particular shot. I think it's even lit similar. Although, I was going to say the backlighting. Yeah, um, it's, the backlighting is the same as well. I'm, I'm sure yeah. they were inspired by that particular scene. Um, so and that's that's actually a true story. At least it's, well, it's considered a true story. It's urban legend. Um, but there are a number of troopers that basically had mentioned, you know, I think we just walked past or I walked past a German Right. So yeah, definitely some inspiration there, but yeah. Um, and it basically, it, it, I guess to backtrack it, um, 
Colonel Strayer lands far north of um, at Causeway Number Four. He ends up, ends up somewhere between um, Fukerville and uh, Ravennaville, uh, and he gathers up by his count. And there's a, a story about Lou Nixon going into a courtyard, a, a French farmhouse, and speaking with the the um, farm owner. And they end up drinking a bottle of wine, and he shows back up two hours later and tells them it tells strayer and and hester hey we got to go that way and they're like (laughs) what the hell were you doing and he's like well i didn't want to be rude you know i'm on french time man it's french lunch time yeah (laughs) so they gather up about 200 troopers and they head out um so by the time they get to uh le grand chemin where where which is the little community that's just um north of breakor you know northwest of breakor um there's lots of conjecture about who got where first. By my count, it was actually uh, Winter's column that ends up, they break away from the coal column. Coal stops at causeway number three and they continue going. Um, and they end up getting down there. And and basically there's a bunch of troopers in the area and they're kind of holding that that in, intersection. There's a, There was an orchard there at the time. And then some of the troopers had dug into the orchard, but literally like, Five minutes after they get there, the Strayer column shows up. So now you've got 250 troopers in this area. So they lay stake, they lay claim to this little community, and they Strayer sends out little patrols to figure out what's going on around him. And he sends a lieutenant by the name of Kelly from Dog Company up the road towards where Braycor is. And the Germans are fully aware now that there, there are paratroopers crawling all over the place. And Kelly's small column gets gets shot up. They don't take any casualties or they take one casualty, but they're able to pull back before anything. They, they lose a lot of guys. Kelly comes back to the command post, the battalion command post, and says, hey, there's a lot of Germans in this farm over here to our south. Um, and he starts pointing out positions to Hester. Now, Hester had been the original Easy Company executive officer. So he had a lot of trust in Easy Company. So when the time comes that the Schreyer wants these, he, they can the artillery starts firing onto Utah Beach. So they the dialogue there is pretty good. It, where in the miniseries where they're kind of explaining uh, what's going on uh, and what the rationale is why they have to go and secure this this position. And I don't think uh, in my conversations with the guys that were there. I don't think that Strayer or Hester knew how few easy company guys were there at the time. So there's only about 12, if memory serves. I'd have to go back and, you know, I could go through the names and probably pick the roster out, but the guys that they show undertaking the assault are the guys that were there. Right. Um, And then they were augmented by guys like Gerald Lorraine, which I find hysterical during the assault when (laughs) <laughs> and Garnier calls him a Jeep jockey. It was actually Bill who missed the German that was running away and, and Lorraine drilled him. <laughs> <laughs> but made for good story, right? Yeah. That wild Bill, the wild Bill persona. You got to keep yeah. it going. And Bill right. Bill was funny because I, I teased him about that. And I said, well, you missed that one guy. And he goes, yeah, but I didn't miss the other guy that was laying in the field. <laughs> he, he didn't have any problem with, with that that aspect of telling that part of the story <laughs> but it didn't um so but, so I'm he goes st- they, yeah carry on yeah 
yeah, they go back to the they go back to the form D company and they report and and Hester basically says, you know, he, he looks at George Lavinson and George Lavinson had been a platoon leader in Easy Company and now he's the battalion adjutant. And he tells Lavinson, he's like, go get Easy Company, whoever's in charge, get him and bring him up here. And it, it's winners. And they brief him on the situation and they say, you think you, think you can handle it? And he's like, yes, of course. And so what happens is he goes to Buck Compton and he says, Buck, I need you to scout out towards that position. Tell me what you so they're executing what's called a leader's recon. He's executing a quick reconnaissance. So they're not they, they know at least they have a little idea what they're going to go up against. You don't want to run in there flatheading and not know what's going on. And then you run into a buzzsaw and you lose everybody. So he sends in Buck. Buck goes down this. He moves um, south along this um, almost like a trench at the side of a, a field. Um, I think it was a cabbage patch or something. And he, he scouts up quite, quite a bit. But it's easy. Once you get into that trench line, you can see the guns firing from the tree line at Breakor. Buck right. comes back, gives Winters that brief, and then he, ta- he does what we call the military task org. He's task organizing the troops that he has. So he sets his machine gun teams, and then he sets his assault and his base of fire element. Right. So- and then this is where I'm going to steal from Ken Burns, a documentary, I believe, where he's talking about Nathan Bedford Forrest and how much of a genius he was and how the genius military commanders um, can manipulate time and geography. Um, and this is where Winter's Legend is born. We've got the Bill Garnier legend is born, Winter's Legend is born. have to be very careful here because I think Paul Woodage threatened to punch me in the face if I said that this attack was taught at West Point, like it says at the show, because apparently it's not. <laughs> if anybody mentions it, he's going to punch them in the face. So to avoid <laughs> being punched in the face, I'm going to, that's a disclaimer. But uh, yeah, so talk us through the attack and talk us through how brilliantly it was conceived and executed, um, because the Germans do end up firing on one another. That's not a myth, is it? No, that's that's correct. So um, yeah, to revisit your comment about um Bedford, Nathan Bedford Forrest in the Ken Burns um, documentary. Yes, you if you have time and space, you use it. And he does, he uses it to develop his battle plan in a way that doesn't unnecessarily put his troops in harm's way until it's it's required. He knows that he has the Germans do not know he's there. So he has the element of surprise, which is going to work in his favor. And he has the ability to scout out the ground and pick and choose where he wants to put his firepower and his assault elements. Again, he's using, like you said, time and space. He's using time and space and terrain um, to set his um, troop to task properly to execute this mission. So they have two parallel axes of advance. One has Buck and his team, and the other, along with the machine gun team, and the other has he with his assault team and his machine gun team. Now, about halfway up the trench line, Buck sets up the one machine gun to put fire on gun position number two. Winters takes his team. And if you look at it, the, the gun position's in a dog leg. There's been some talk back and forth. And, and Paul and, and Woody and I have had some spirited discussions about the way the guns were laid out. But a lot of the accounts that I have of the men who were there said it was three howitzers and or three uh, 105 millimeter French cannons along the long leg 
at the corner of the of the dog leg was a German machine gun position. And then up the dog leg was the fourth 105 millimeter cannon. Now, some people tend to think that you need to have all your guns in a line to fire in a, on, a, on the same target. You don't. You could have your guns spread out all over the place. As long as they compute the firing data correctly, they can all put their fire onto a, a point or an area. In this case, the Germans were very, they were outstanding artillerymen. So I have right. no doubt understanding why they would pro probably do that. Um, maybe because they could give them full extension to cover a longer field of fire. So what they could do is converge the fire from the laterals all the way inboard and then back out again to do sweeping and plunging fire across an area. So Winner's positions his machine gun to under to take both the machine the MG42 position and the artillery piece, and we'll call that the dogleg piece gun number one. Okay. To take those two positions under fire. And he also has Ranny and Lipton providing point fire as well. So they can pick out selective people to target. Winters is going to be part, his team is going to be the assault L echelon on that portion of the the field. Once Buck gets his position, his guys in position, they initiate the, the attack with the grenades and the machine gun fire. It's almost like a simultaneous. The machine guns start firing enough to draw the German attention away from Buck and his team getting close. They unlimber their grenades and it wipes out the MG42 position for the most part. There's a couple of guys that are wounded in there. Once that happens, the assault is on. They leave the cover of their of the tree lines and make their assault across the open ground. But because they've taken out that machine gun, the Germans' greatest weapon in terms of repelling an assault is, is disabled, which allows them to get into the trench line. They immediately start working up towards gun one and clear that. And that's when you see a lot of those guys hopping out of the trench line and them taking them under fire. They clear that whole area from the, the machine gun position up through the artillery position. Now, one thing that I like to point out, and I know um, Woody would yell at me if I didn't, was two two things. One, the trench was not anywhere near as developed as was shown in the miniseries. It was more of like a foot deep communications trench that was just meant to keep uh, to be able to run ammunition or messages or what have you between the guns. It was not meant to be a covered, defending a defendable position like that. Um, and you have to understand the, the intelligence of the Germans in setting up this position, right? The Allies didn't know this artillery position existed until D-Day, until they were there. And part of the reason was the Germans were aware that the, the Allies were conducting aerial reconnaissance flights and shooting a lot of photographs of the area. So what they did was set up these trench lines that bordered, essentially, they mimicked the border of the field. Right. So that they would not leave trails in the grass across the field to attract attention. So this was, was brilliant. It's, it's tactically brilliant, right? You're not, you're not providing a signature for them to clue in on, to give away the position of the artillery field. So that's why they didn't know it was there. There was no aerial indication in, in the imagery to show there was a position there, but this trench is what they use to move instead of going laterally across the field. Now, the other piece you asked about was the machine guns, the Germans firing on each other. Yes. It does happen. Um, so what happened is, if you think about the position of, of Bray Corps, and the Germans have been 
inculcated to under to know that the there was going to be uh, paratrooper assaults most likely in that area. So to present protect that position, they had positioned a number of machine guns in the south portion of the field, covering the open fields south of Breakor. By the time the assault's underway, those guns are still pointed south. They're not pointed north back towards where the gun position is. I mean, when you think about it, common sense, why would you position your machine guns to fire into your own gun pits? Yeah. But once the grenades start going off and they can see that there's an assault underway, the German machine gun crews on the south side of the field turn their machine guns around and start trying to engage the Americans on the opposite end. But what they don't know is the Americans haven't captured all the machine gun positions yet. So believing that all of the positions have fell, or at least a couple have fell, they start firing on the battery positions. So those, there is quite a bit of fire coming in, and some of the Germans in pits two, I think it was pit two, started taking fire from some of their own machine guns on the south side of the, the position. Right. Okay. Um, and then, so I'm just going to add another element into this as well uh, that I'm not sure is portrayed in the miniseries to this extent, but to what what role does Ronald Spears now play in this attack and how much of an ass-kicking does he get for his action from Winters? So <laughs> by the time um, Spears uh, shows up, they've already captured guns two and three. I really do like how they show Winters engaging the machine gun team in the trench line. That yeah. was true. They did, and they were actually wounded. Uh, he didn't kill them outright. They were wounded, and they were actually sent back as prisoners. But he kept going and kept clearing. He actually runs through what's called the a Fire Direction Center, the FDC. So he runs through the FDC, and that's where he finds the map um, that they show in the in the miniseries, although that map is a post-war dated one. Um, it still effectively conveys what he what he does and what he accomplishes. And then, and then Ron Livingston's Nixon, you know, like really foot stomps the importance of it uh, at the end of the episode. But they keep going. They finally capture gun three. They are running low on ammunition. Now, the other part of the thing that Woody would be very upset with me if I didn't point out, <laughs> we make it seem like this whole assault takes place over the space of about 15 or 20 minutes. It doesn't. Right. It's more like three hours that it takes to clear this entire position. It is much more slow and methodical than it is shown especially once they've cleared up to gun three. They're still taking a lot of fire from across the field. They haven't cleared that out, and they won't until um, Nix goes out and pick and, and finds a couple of tanks coming ashore uh, from the, uh, I think it's the 70th Indian Independent Tank Battalion that comes ashore, and he's able to, to grab, like, the, the urban legend is he grabs the first four tanks to come off of Utah Beach. Um, I've read through that tank battalions after action and I can't, can't say that with any certainty, but the point is they don't take out those machine guns until the tank, the tanks show up. So this fight takes quite a while. So to, to get back to your point, uh, to your, to your question about spears, Popeye, Popeye Wynn is wounded. They also, Petty is also wounded, which is not depicted in the miniseries. So they're they're down on ammunition. And now you remember you got a small assault assault force here. You only got about twelve troopers. So you're down two already. Guys are exhausted. They've been up all night. Uh, Bill Garnier at one point fell asleep 
in the on the side of this communication trench and Joe Toy bumped into him and he woke up and Toy's like, well, I thought you were dead. <laughs> and he keeps going. And then Joe Toy is wounded as well. And it, and they, they don't um, they never really refer to it. But it, people with a, a sharp eye for detail will notice that um, Kirk has his wrist and hand. His oh, right yeah. wrist Bill Garnier told me this story in Paris. Yes. Ban- bandaged. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You want to tell it? Or you want me to yeah. Tell it? I mean, I'll sure. tell it as best as Go I can. Ahead. And you just Brilliant. interject. Um, he was saying that. Joe Toy didn't want to put his leg bag around his leg. Correct me if I'm wrong here. So he puts it around his arm instead. And when they jump, it rips into his wrist, or into his wrist here, bone deep. So when he lands, Bill Garnier says, man, are you all right? And Joe just fires a bunch of expletives at him, <laughs> rips off, spits on it, and just carries on. Yeah, Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. He he. Uh, so there's a a twenty foot rope or so that's attached to the leg bag, and so yeah. when you hit the release, the the bag the bag, and we use it. Uh, paratroopers nowadays use a similar um, th- idea with their rucksacks, but back then it was attached to your leg. But it would pop off your leg and run out to the bottom, uh, run out about twenty feet, and it was supposed to be attached to your belt. It had a belt loop hook that you could put on. Right. Okay. But Joe didn't trust that system. So he wrapped around his wrist and took a bite of the rope in his hand. And it almost degloved his hand. Oh, God. It peeled peeled the skin back to about his wrist. So like you said, Bill was concerned because his arm, his hand's bleeding and the blood's running down his arm. And he looks at it and he's a, he, goes, he curses it a little bit. And he spits <laughs> on it. He wraps it up. But they did a great job. Kirk had his hand wrapped. It was beautiful. And then the two grenade thing with Kirk was also correct oh yeah <laughs> um and beautifully depicted as well but he <laughs> bumps into him and he's like i thought thought you were dead <laughs> you know <laughs> and he just keeps going and uh, actually do you know what um there was something i was going to interject about ages ago in this chat and I, maybe this is something to do with it um the pills that they were given told to take oh, yeah. one before and one sent them all loopy is that because i mean the, the adrenaline levels must have been quite high uh yeah it was the the pills where they sort of like whoa, knocking them sideways as well. Yeah, For, Forrest Goodson uh, told me because yeah, yeah, they made us made me, made me really sleepy. A yeah. lot of the guys were kind of conked out on the plane for a little bit, uh, but they said once the fire, once the the anti aircraft fire and the small arms fire started coming up, you know that's a that's a good wake up call. Yeah, but a lot of the guys were 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 out cold on the plane, um, and I don't know if these were meant to sedate in the way that they did um i mean it might have been a side effect um but yeah it did have that effect on the guys um yeah i think ross does this uh this is one scene with ross where he kind of trips a little bit and almost falls on somebody yeah and, and he's like those pills are sending me loopy yeah yeah that that, that is a, a common uh it was a common um story uh that was told to me by a number of the 506ers not just easy company guys uh that got the pills yeah they were some of them didn't take them. Right. Some of them, like, I've never been airsick in my entire life. I don't need these things. And at one point, I think one of the platoon leaders, it might have been second platoon's um, Roush, Warren Roush. I think he had he stood there and watched his guys, made sure they t- took them in on on his stick. So I mean, and, and I think Winners did as well, if memory serves. But yeah, they they. Um, I don't know if that was the intended effect, but it definitely that was what was re- reported. Um, <laughs> A lot of the guys like knocked them loopy. They were kind of sedate and relaxed, and you know, not not really 
understand the gravity of it until you know that those first booms and pings start happening and then then you know the light the light bulb goes on and goes yeah. okay we'll time to turn right on up. the adrenal glands yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so back yeah, to so we'll get back to spears yeah yeah so um spears does bring a resupply of ammunition um uh, along with hester hester comes down to look at what's taking so long you're like why didn't why haven't they wiped this thing out yet and he comes down here and he's like okay now i understand what the problem is and this this is a buzzsaw in here yeah. so he goes back and then let me just sorry i need to interject here so that's an mg42 to anybody who's wondering why he keeps saying buzzsaw yeah or um what's what's the oh the british used to call them spandaus oh, you guys, the english used to call them spandaus i think was the which is funny because i think a spandau was actually like a check machine gun no it was a world war one maxim i think but anyway that that, that nickname uh stayed in play during world war ii and, and, and on the english side as far as oh, okay. but anyway yeah um hester comes back and he, he basically uh, corrals a bunch of troops and sends them sends them forward and most of them come from um the second battalion headquarters from the light machine gun platoon uh, a guy by the name of red Kimmer kimberling another one by the name of uh, oh, there were some fox company guys led by leonard pop hicks and julius hauk hauk is killed um, he gets stitched by an MP40 while he's there, so it, it's not as antiseptic as the miniseries makes it look. And some, and when Spear shows up, he actually begins his assault above the trench line. So there's a scene I think where Neil Neil McDonough is saying to um, the winner's character, um, "What's he doing? Getting out of the trench?" That's true. He did, and as he got as as. As they laid down covering fire and Spears jumped in the trench as he was Tommy gunning one of the uh, German gunners, several Germans who were running out threw grenades back into the pit with him. And these were con little concussive grenades or little egg grenades that were made for concussion purposes more than fragmentation. And he was literally trying to stomp these grenades into the dirt. And one of them set one of his jump boots on fire. But they finally are able to clear that fourth gun. But the, the Germans retreat into where the manor house is. And that sets up the, the action later on that's not depicted in the miniseries. Where um, Malarkey goes back and gets his mortar tube. And starts firing on the Germans with his mortar tube. And he doesn't have the base plate or anything. So he's just holding the tube between his legs into the ground. And he fires so many rounds that the, the tube itself is halfway submerged into the dirt. But this all takes place out, obviously out of um, the scope of the miniseries episode. Right. Wow. Um, but yeah, um, that's that, the Spears Wild Man stories begin there. Oh, yeah. To, but to walk back, so we'll connect the dots with Spears a little bit because of the legend, right? Yeah. And 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 does does Winters end up chewing him out for the attack, uh, or or is that legend as well? Uh, I wouldn't say he, his part of it was reckless. Or have I have I got that wrong? He did. He did go to him and talk to him about the the, the pell mell nature of the assault. He said, "Hey, next time, use the trench lines. You know, don't don't." He's like, "He's like, no, it was faster to get in the pit, kind of thing." He was trying to counter it, but you know, Winters is a first lieutenant, Spears is a second lieutenant at the time, um, so it's not like he's my company commander yelling at me. He's right. just another lieutenant. He's like, yeah, I got it. You know, he kind of blows it off a little bit. But I want to go back to the scene where um, Scott Grimes' malarkey character runs into the German 
uh, from Oregon. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, this rounds out the spear stuff. Yeah. Yeah, because we, we want to connect all those dots. And again, like we did with Wild Bill and, and the Wild yeah. Bill legend, we want to talk about the the killing machine that is Ron, Ron Spears. Um, so that's that sequence in the miniseries is, is a bit of an amalgamation of, of incidents. Um, Malarkey does run into a German from who was born in Oregon. He was actually born in Portland, not Eugene. Um, and he was a master sergeant. He had been rounded up. The whole sequence with Spears coming back and giving cigarettes does, did not happen there. Right. It actually happens outside of Carantan. And, it, and, and Don could never confirm. He never saw Spears give cigarettes to them or shoot them. But apparently they heard Tommy gun as they were, as they were beginning their assault into, to Carantan, you know, that big scene where the guys go running down the road. You know, uh-huh. We'll talk about in the Carantan episode. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's Tommy gun fire coming from the rear uh, of the battalion. And Don's like, what the hell is that? And somebody told him, oh, that's just Spears getting rid of some prisoners. So right. the writers took the two stories and kind of mashed them together to provide a little gravitas to it. Um, to, to one, um, build the legend of Spears and two, to show that not everybody was on board with killing prisoners. Right. Uh, Win- yeah. Winners himself said, I was not, they are a good source of information. I am not, you know, I'm not, I won't partake in that kind of thing. I look down on it. So he, he really didn't, um, he didn't really enjoy uh, like that or in his, in, in easy company, he wouldn't have put up with it, but Bill was, Bill was Bill. Bill was going to do what Bill needed to do. Right. But um, yeah, the, the two incidents are, are separate and you have to bifurcate them to really understand it. But I understand why it was done for the miniseries uh, that, to, to, provide that legend building and that gravitas of the scene. But yeah, Don was like, yeah, this guy was from Portland. I'm from Eugene. This is like this weird synergy. The guy speaks English just as good as an American does because he grew up there. But the whole sequence about them going back home because, you know, Hitler called everybody back to the the fatherland was, was true based on what Don told me. Right. Um, yeah. So I just want to go back to the Spears thing, actually. Um, was it commonplace? shooting prisoners possibly for the four like i i sort of i can understand why it would be with these sort of like with paratroopers with that you know guys that they can't they can't do anything with the prisoners they're only going to slow them down it's day one what they're going to do with them they really had they've got objectives you know it it really yeah sorry exactly exactly what you're saying right that that methodology tracks when you think about it uh, if I don't have any uh, military police with me or prisoner handling uh, folks with me to take care of these guys, I don't have enough food for myself, never mind them. Um, I can't spare the men to watch them. It, you know, you you could rationale it away. There's also, um, well, I mean, you mentioned it before. There's also the fact, I mean, these guys are new to combat. Um, the Germans are seasoned battle hardened soldiers and the first chance they're going to get, they're going to jump you. They're going to jump you or they're going to run. Yeah. I mean, I know they'd brought in all these guys from the East guys who want, wanted to fight and stuff, but uh, you know, I mean, that yeah. like the, the guys with, with, with while Bill Garnier, you know, they were looking for the first opportunity to jump them. Yeah. I mean, there, there was plenty of, these guys had seen plenty of dead GIs on their way down to that. Right, to that. Yeah. I mean, so it's easy to sit there and build up the anger you need to rationale that away in your own mind. 
Um, but then you have the counter argument like Winters, these guys have information that may we may need. Um, and frankly, it's bad business because um, moralistically, you want to be on the high ground because you know what's happening and the you know what's happening in Germany and Poland. Uh, word is, is has escaped um, to the United States for, through through the uh, various familial networks about what's happening. So, um, but that you could it's easy to see where you could you could build up the rage to get to that point to do it. Um, I don't know. I we, we took quite a lot of prisoners in Iraq. I never got to the point where I could build up the, that kind of um rage well, maybe maybe if i'd seen a lot harder combat maybe uh, and seen a lot more bad things happen to people i knew yeah you probably could build that up but you know you know i didn't lose my brother you know like bill right right exactly immediately you, know, you have that immediacy and that that recency of, of of what's going on in your life and how your life has been affected in your family directly by these people so um easy to see how that could happen and there were plenty of Plenty of units that did take no prisoners, literally. Um, in fact, Joe Toy wrote at one point that when um, me and actually walked around uh, the airfield to each of the sticks of Easy Company and said, according to Joe Toy, no prisoners. Right. We're not taking prisoners. And that was the the rumored guidance from Division. Yeah. So you have, you have to, you know, every situation is a judgment call in that regard. Yeah. Well, there's the um, there's the D-Day Museum, Dead Man's Corner Museum, where they have the uh, uh what's his name, the, the fellow, uh, he's 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 got the big picture of him on the side of it and everything. And oh, Wolverton. Wolverton. I, I apologise for for not remembering that. Ah, uh, that was he was part of his speech as well, wasn't it? No prisoners tonight. They'll only slow you down. Yeah. Uh, again, the 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 rumored guidance never put into writing, but. The rumored guidance coming down from division was we don't take prisoners, at least for the first few days, because we have no way of taking care of them. Right. Right. And, and the Germans, um, the guidance coming through German command was paratroopers were um, to be treated as um, spies, saboteurs, and not afforded the same consideration as normal soldiers. So shot on sight as well. So, yeah. 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 All right. Well, we'll round it up with them. So, how does the day round up, and how does the day end up? Day one. I mean, I was like John Orloff. Um, he gets <laughs> he's <laughs> he's a he's a brainiac, John Orloff. Very smart man. But we he's he, I always remember him saying, you know, that Winters was as close to a Superman as ever lived. That was a, he ever interviewed. And he's like, you know, he starts the day um with a fucking knife and ends it by taking out these you know guns on whatever it's like so it, it's, a, it's a bloody good day's work isn't it yeah it, it, and and again this all stems back to their training right they're trained to operate like this in these little mm -hmm. small groups and you know i don't i'm sure they didn't plan for the loss of weapons but they may do with what they got um and he is able to to um keep his head and keep his composure um and stay on mission uh, very, very well. And a lot of it has to do physical aptitude. Your body can recover better if you're in excellent shape. Yep. And he is in peak physical fit fitness. Um, he is also extremely well-trained and well and a conscientious officer as well. Um, so he is able to stay focused when he needs to, even when he's lacking sleep. Um, 
we'll get to the point when we we do the Tarantan episode and we start talking about sleep deprivation and what happens to the guys as they move move forward in the campaign. But that night, they are actually um, they move down to Easy um, gets placed in Battalion Reserve uh, in Coolaville, um, which is um, south south southwest of of uh, where Breakcore is. If you keep traveling south, and everything is flowing towards Carantan, right? Um, they have to link the two beaches together, and Carantan is one of the pivot points there to do that. Uh, Utah and, and and Omaha. So everything is starting to flow south, while, while as the 502 has to maintain uh, the northern part of the airhead along with the 82nd to the west, it's all to make things easier on the 4th Infantry Division. And by and large, they have a, a I wouldn't say easy, nobody had an easy day on D-Day. They had, they were able to come along, come in, even though they landed in the wrong place, in good order, and are able to assemble. Where they begin to suffer is during the Bocage, when they start to take the fight inland. But Winders and the rest of Easy Company are down in Coolaville providing um, security for the regimental headquarters that night. Now, there's the whole sequence where Winters, there's a, the exposition um, while you see the tracers firing up in the air and the flaming landscape in the background where he talks about going and, and praying. What what he doesn't doesn't show in there is that as he as he goes outside of the compound at Coolaville and Coolaville, while it might sound like a town, it's really just more like a cluster of buildings and a farm. Uh, most of the men sleep in a hayloft in Coolaville. Some are out on the perimeter a little bit, but Winters exits the eastern side of the of the compound and he walks up the road to find himself some peace and quiet where he can pray, and he actually hears Germans in the field across from him to the east and he dives into the the trench line along the roadway and waits it out while these germans and these are parts of von der Heide's, um Fallschirmjäger, who they they end up fighting all the the following day in an into Carantan. but he's he's able to finally break free of that area and go back into the compound but he he ends the day much like my like is is described in the miniseries where he he prays to God and he says, you know, after this is all over, if I make it, I just want a little, a little farm, a little piece of, of the United States to call my own, um, where I'll never basically pick up a gun again. And except for showing off some of his war souvenirs, if I remember correctly, and Cole Kingseed would probably yell at me for not remembering, but Cole, Cole was his co-author for his, his official biography, his wartime biography. And he, he said, I don't think he ever fired a gun again, um, after the war so um it is really a um a beautiful end ending to an episode which has so much violence baked into it mm -hmm. um to leave you on a, on a on a note of of hope for the future even though there's still eight more episodes to go yeah no i agree yeah brilliantly rounded out I'm not going to tell John all off that though. His head's big enough anyway. <laughs> no, he's not. He's a really cool guy. <laughs> Always well, he better, he better do some damn good work on Masters of the Air. I've been hearing great things about it. I actually auditioned for Masters of the Air. Uh, not that they were ever going to cast anyone from band, but my agent was just like, yeah, they might. They might. I was like, they won't, but I'll do it anyway because it'll be fun. So I got the script and uh, it's actually like um, it's like a great escape episode. I probably shouldn't say anything about this, actually, <laughs> uh, but they didn't cast me. So I don't care about the NDA. Um, <laughs> but I was auditioning for this colonel, this American colonel. And I read this paragraph of dialogue and I was like, 
no one speaks like this. The only person who speaks like this is John Orloff. <laughs> so I just emailed him and I was just like, did you write this episode? He's like, yes, I did. How did you know? <laughs> uh, no reason, mate. No reason. <laughs> Too much poeticism in it? Exactly, yeah. I was like, the colonel sounded a lot like John Orloff. <laughs> um, that's brilliant. Okay, so we'll round it out now and we'll come back and do Carantin um, in a week or so's time or whenever you're free and we'll crack on with that. It's been brilliant. Thanks very much, Mooch. Yep, my pleasure. Thanks Absolute for having me. Pleasure. Me. Yeah. If uh, say so, thank you so much. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. If you jump off, I'll round out and say thank you to everybody and sponsors and that kind of stuff. Yep. And we'll my see best you soon. to everybody. Thanks for listening. Cheers, Mooch. Right. Well, it's just me. Dougie had some business to do. So, and Leighton's in a hotel in London with really poor Wi Fi. So it's just me to say thank you very much for listening. Um, and thank you so much to our sponsors, SDHQ Motorsports. Um, hopefully your advert will be a part of this podcast. And of course, to Eric Dorr and the Gettysburg Museum of History for sponsoring us as well. Um, check his stuff out. Check out the History Underground, his partner in crime and all this brilliant YouTube stuff. Thank you to all our new Patreons. I will read them all out on the podcast, but as it's just me, I don't have a list of them. Um, and all the new Patreons will be entered into the competition to win that super cool signed book. Um, Eric Dorr's book, Fierce Valor, which is signed by an incredible person and you'll have to enter the competition to find out one, become a patron and then you'll find out who it is. Um, it is, or it's Brad Freeman, um, which is very, very, very cool. Um, and it's got a whole lot of other stuff involved. It's, it's worth a bloody fortune. I can't believe he's letting us give it away. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you to all our listeners, our sponsors, our patrons, our regulars, um, and for those of you who are thinking about coming on tour with us in October, get your tickets now because there really are not very many left. Anyway, I shall see you anon. Thanks for listening. Bye.